the stories I had written. The character was either dead at the beginning or died at the end. Huh. And I said, whoa, I never thought of myself as such a morbid person. And then I was, so I was trying to figure out why I would do that. And I looked, paid more uh, closer attention to the stories. And I, I realized that what, I, what the stories were really about were, was people trying to do the right thing and failing. That is, so what they're, essentially what they're doing is struggling against fate. And the, the, the thing that renders fate in its most implacable form is death. Welcome to the Lifelines Podcast, brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. Today, we are privileged to talk with writer Stephen O'Connor about his debut novel. O'Connor's work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Best American Short Stories, The New York Times, The Nation, The Boston Globe, and too many other places to name. In his new novel, Thomas Jefferson Dreams of Sally Hemings, O'Connor takes his writing to the next level. Published by Viking, the book tries to reconcile Jefferson's idealistic proclamation that all men are created equal with his lifelong ownership of slaves. O'Connor lives in New York City and teaches at Sarah Lawrence. And because our show is sponsored by the Brooklyn Writers Project, let's start by asking about his background. Stephen, we understand you were born in Brooklyn. Yes, I was, an alarmingly long time ago, but I was born um, at the, uh, the Downstate Medical Center, which has now been converted into condos. Cool. Although one time, one time I was, I was going to read at a book court, which is also gone, and uh, I was wandering around the neighborhood, and I just looked at this, I saw this building, and I looked at the doors, and I realized, oh my God, that's the building where I was born. And I recognized it because my father had been an intern there, and when I was very small, he dropped a dresser on my toe, and I had to go and get uh, my, you know, my toe stitched up. And I guess I just imprinted on that door, and I never forgot it. So any event, when I was reading at book uh, court, I was looking directly toward the place where I was born, which felt like I don't surreal know, some, in, <laughs> in some way. You know, some kind of I don't know, homecoming or something. How much time did you uh, spend in Brooklyn? Because you didn't stay there long. No, right? I you didn't stay there Jersey. long. We moved shortly after I was born to. Manhattan near my grandparents uh, and, and we lived in a railroad flat, a walk-up railroad flat on East 81st Street near between uh, East End and York. Wow. And, uh, so. Is this stuff in your memoir? I've read um, Thomas Jefferson, Dreams of Sally Hemings, but not all of your work. So is this in your memoir? Is this... You know, you know, I don't really. It's called a memoir. It is a memoir, but it's not really about. It's me. more about about the kids that yeah. you were, um, that were in a program. Is that correct? A writing yeah, I, and teaching program. Right. I worked for eight years with Teachers and Writers Collaborative, and for most of that time, I was the head of the school-wide uh, creative writing program. And I would I would hire Active Columbia MFA students to come and teach, and I would train them, and I would teach myself. And uh, the, my book is about uh, two years where students were doing this amazing project of writing about actual in incidents of violence in New York City and then putting on plays based out of their compositions and acting in the plays. And uh, that, that time enabled me to see all kinds of amazing things. I mean, both about the way the kids saw violence, the way they saw race in the city, which surprised me, actually. Uh, but also, it said so much to me about the failure of uh, you know American society to provide decent public education, to provide the kind of social services that you know people need and that are just commonplace in, in you know many other countries in the world. And it was at a time when George H. W. Bush was blaming the public schools for you know their failure uh, to you know educate the students, and I was saying. You know, the, the crisis in the schools, as they called it then, is not in the schools, it's in the community. And you're expecting the schools to pay for all the problems that exist, in, rather to compensate for all the problems that exist in the community. 
And that's not possible, and that's hypocritical. And I was just filled with rage, and so that's what my book was about. But actually, I hate to write about myself. <laughs> you do? Yeah, yeah <laughs> I hate it. I, when I, I, I became a fiction writer because I, uh, I thought my life was boring, and I could, I, that the world in my imagination was so much more interesting to me. And uh, I mean, it's, maybe it's a little bit, uh, um, you know, of a misrepresentation to say that I don't write about myself because uh, when I'm writing fiction, you know, it's always coming out of my my obsessions, my anxieties. Whatever. I was going to say you know, we we and Diane and I have spoken to other authors where um, it, it's a topic that we like to dig into a little bit. Is how much of the person who is the writer ends up in the work and I think that it's very difficult to mm -hmm. separate the two so whether you like it or not you're showing up right and oh absolutely just, I mean yeah. I, I frankly you know having written that memoir and a couple of other memoiristic pieces I am much more exposed in my fiction where there are no almost no events from my own life but uh, and, and and I can tell you a story I mean when I was doing my first collection of short stories which was called rescue um, I wanted it to be more than just a bunch of stories. So I started looking at the stories to see what points they had in common, what sort of themes I was developing. And I came to the startling recognition, which is that in every one of the stories I had written, the character was either dead at the beginning or died at the end. Huh. And I said, whoa, I never thought of myself as such a morbid person. And then I was so I was trying to figure out why I would do that, and I looked, paid more uh, closer attention to the stories, and I, I realized that what, I, what the stories were really about were, was people trying to do the right thing and failing. That is, so what they're essentially what they're doing is struggling against fate, and the the, the thing that renders fate in its most implacable form is death, and so that was coming into my stories. But once I realized that there was this sort of a moral issue at the heart of my stories, I then began to write more stories, not all of which involved people dying or, right, or right. being dead. Uh, and in fact, what's really weird is that every single book I have written in my entire career is about someone who's trying to do the right thing and failing. And I never, never, never am aware of it when I'm doing it. So my memoir... I'm the one who's trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to help these kids who I think are incredibly smart, great deserving people, and who I you know, love in a way, and I can't. You know, what's going on in their lives is beyond anything that I can manage. In the orphan trains, it's Charles Loring Brace, the founder of the Children's Aid Society, mm -hmm. who's trying to help these homeless, orphaned, and just plain poor kids and can't really do everything that he wants to do. Uh, and then, to my utter astonishment, when I was in the middle of working on Thomas Jefferson Dreams, Sally Hemings, I suddenly thought, oh no, I've done it again. <laughs> I mean, who more than Thomas Jefferson is trying to do the right thing and failing wait, catastrophically? Wait, 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 one, one more test. Let's test this theory to the max okay. before you continue, because okay, okay. I think you've certainly uncovered that. But now, before that first book, before that first book, there was a story in 1981, On the Wing. What was On the Wing about? I'm just curious because you just dissected all of your work, and I'm just curious. What was On the Wing about? Well, that's what interesting. Uh, <laughs> have you read that story? No, okay. I, I did not read it. I know it's, that you've written it. I know that it was your, per, your first yeah, published work. Yeah, it's very hard to find. It was in the Partisan Review. Uh, and it's not, as far as I know, it doesn't exist online. The partisan review no longer. I want to draw a thread between what you well, wrote because there was that you know, it's a little time. hard for me to remember that story. I know there were uh. a lot of birds in it. It was a kind of a surreal story set on a lake where a couple had gone to, I don't know, sort of solve their romantic problems. And Did they just, fail? It didn't work. They failed. Yeah, there they you failed. go. But, yeah, that's true. They ended up breaking up. And uh, I think that the, uh, one or the other of them sort of got carried away by a bird, but I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so now we have managed to, to um, confirm a theme in mm -hmm. your work, which is not 
always easy to do. So, right. great. So, uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm absolutely. I mean, so it, it's just to say how perhaps that comes from my life. Uh, I think to some extent, you know, probably it has to do with my own struggles with myself, my struggles with my conscience and all that. But also it has to do, a lot to do with my father who was a really quite amazing person in many ways. And he was an Irish immigrant and he, uh, you know, he, no one in his family had gone to school beyond the sixth grade. And he, you know, on the, on the GI Bill, he went to college, he became a doctor, then he became a psychoanalyst. He was a very loving, smart man, but he was also an alcoholic. And I had to struggle with that my whole life, you know, with this, this man who was, I loved, and who was in some ways a role model to me, but also just let me down, let me down, let me down, and filled me with rage. And so I, I think that's the reason why that particular theme is so, you know, lodged in, in my mind. So there's an example of the way in which, uh, uh, you know, uh, my, my autobiography comes out in my fiction, but I've never written about an alcoholic. I've never written about my father. Well, I did write one story about, in my first book, there was a story about a young man who carries his father home in a paper bag. His father has shrunk down to the size of a Ken doll, and he's inside the bag, and he's sort of screaming and yelling and banging. <laughs> and, and the woman next to him says, it's so sad. My father was just the same way. <laughs> and the story goes on. I love that. That's really weird. Really that was the great. only one I've written about a father. Really great. Well, you do vary into some fairly surrealistic um, methods of writing. Um, and uh, I know when I read Thomas Jefferson, Dreams of Sally Hemings, I was really blown away. After I read just the beginning, um, I sat down to do some writing, because I do that from time to time, oh, and right. my writing was so much better. I was like, I can do anything, I can say anything, I can turn it into a surrealistic scene, I can have pigeons flying around. And <laughs> it was so liberating, you know, it just kind of made me feel very uninhibited in writing. Mm. And um, uh, do, are there... Are there other authors that you think you are in um, a line with? I mean, because to me it was pretty much one of a kind. Well, you know, I, it started, uh, it, it started actually kind of almost by accident. A student of mine at Columbia was starting a literary magazine and he asked me, if I might contribute a, a very short 300-word piece uh, to it about an historical figure. It could be fiction, nonfiction, or whatever. So I said, sure. I went home and I, I just sat down at my computer and as is my habit, I try, I try never to know what I'm going to write before I start to write it. I don't make outlines. For me, it's all improvisation. So I just wrote the first thing that came into my head. Uh, Sally Hemings was sleeping. I didn't know anything about Sally Hemings then, except that there had been a relationship between her and Jefferson, and that she'd borne Jefferson's children, that she had been, you know, a slave on his plantation. Uh, anyhow, then I wrote this little surrealistic scene about the children sending diving bells down into her dreams and discovering that it was very cold and lonely down there. Um, and then I couldn't stop thinking about Jefferson Hemings, and in particular I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that Jefferson was uh, you know, the guy who wrote All Men Are Created Equal, which is the phrase um, upon which all the liberation struggles in this country from abolitionism all the way through to gay marriage and, and beyond are founded on. And yet he owned a slave, he owned slaves his whole life. And I just couldn't understand how those two different minds could inhabit the same skull. And, and I thought that I would try to figure that out. So I wrote this little surrealistic thing about Sally Hemings. So then I decided I would try to write a realistic scene about Jefferson. And then I didn't feel that I'd really gotten it. And then I started wrote some more. Then I was thinking about it, so I was writing little essayistic bits. Then I and I and then I thought, oh, none of this is really satisfying. So I started going back to the surrealism because you know, it just doesn't, in therapy, you know, you, you tell your therapist about your life, but you also tell your therapist about your dreams. You get different kinds of insight from the two things. And then I just kept on doing that, not really knowing what I was doing. Uh, but then finally I realized that I was writing what I thought was a short story. And, uh, and then 
I was thinking, so what style am I going to tell it in? And, you know, I, I couldn't, like, every time I said, okay, I'll just do straight realistic fiction. No, 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 no. That, uh, that leaves all this important stuff. I'll just do a surrealism. No, but then that you're losing the history. Uh, maybe I should just make it an essay. No, but that's, no, the stories are so interesting. And so I just thought, all of a sudden I thought, I'll just do all three styles. And in fact, there was some poetry in it for a while. There were some abstract drawings in it. But in, and in a way, what I was thinking as I was doing this is that finally my career is going to make sense because I've been writing fiction, nonfiction, and poetry my entire life. So that's how it, I started doing this. May I ask you, did you get any, any um, when, when an editor finally looked at this, compilation of work. <laughs> Did they have any any reservations about, hey, we're crossing boundary lines here in regards to how do we sell this thing? Did they, was there any of that or they were they just totally fine with it? Um, well, the editor who bought it loved it. Loved um, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, um, no, he was, he, he made very little, you know, he even made suggestions, but you know, I was the one who did most of the editing. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that they didn't have an yeah. issue with I mean, I'm sure that people that who regretted yeah. You know, you threaded it. People who rejected yeah. it, uh, I think, had some trouble with that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess. I mean, I did, they didn't really say so. But, but I do want to just get back to you know, your question originally, because once I was writing and I, I, and I was thinking about this, and I was, I was noticing, and I was thinking, well, there actually are two writers who uh, I think influenced mm -hmm. me in this. And I don't, you know, I'm not going to put myself on their level at all, but nonetheless, they're people who I've read and they were role models for me. And one is James Joyce and Ulysses. Of course. You know, we're all those different styles. Right. Uh, and also, I mean, I think a profound exploration of the complexities of, of the human mind and maybe less morality, but certainly a very psychologically complex book that is. And the other one was Milan Kundera, you know, and the, the book of laughter and forgetting, and uh, the unbearable yeah, the lightness, lightness of being, being. which are mixes of essays and yeah. and story. Although I think his essays are far better than his fiction. Yeah. <laughs> Although I, lo I think both books are brilliant, but yeah. um, so you know, those were those were in, in out there. They were in my mind, and and even though I didn't think of them when I was doing it. In fact, I didn't think about that until I was having dinner with my editor, and he asked me the question you just oh. asked me. And I just thought, wow, I never gave that, gave that any thought. And then I came up with those. So uh, I find Kundera to be a bit like a quiet writer. You know, like I feel like when I sit and read him, things get very, like, just, just pace along. I didn't get that when I started reading um, the beginning of, of uh, The Orphan Trains and Thomas Jefferson's uh, those two, what I found interesting about both of those is that we're starting with children, and mm. you you paint them effortlessly mm. and so realistically and so richly, and I'm instantly uh, feeling for those vulnerable parts that I mean humans how we start in this world with that vulnerability and yet all those different fears and fearlessness we have all of these things that we do as children and you manage to capture that so incredibly well. And yet your theme is an adult theme about success and failure. Um, so I find that so interesting how you're able to pull that together. Well, you know, Kundera is um, less interested, and he's not really interested in emotion. He's, he's really more interested in ideas. And so one of the reasons why is the fiction parts of his books seem weaker than the essays is that the people never seem really believable. And I don't think he's really trying to move us. I think he maybe wants us to laugh a little bit at these people. Whereas emotion matters a lot to me. And in fact, I mean, it's, it's at the core of what I'm interested in writing about because it's those moments of strong emotion that we, the workings of our mind are most, ex and our hearts are most exposed. And I suppose another theme that I have in a lot of my books is that I'm really interested in those moments where two good things, two good ways of being, or two good sort of moral precepts come into conflict, or where two truths seem to contradict each other. And, and, and a lot of my stories, and a lot of uh, and, and this book and that, the novel I'm working on now, uh, are really about these moments where 
you where the where where one style of living or one style of seeing the world is at odds with another aspect of the world. So I mean, one of the the main things uh, this, that the Thomas Jefferson Dreams of Sally Hemings is about is uh, the way in which the institution of slavery, you know, corrupted everything that was a part of it. Everybody who was in a part of it suffered in some way or other, had to betray themselves. Uh, and, uh, you know, so even someone like Jefferson, with tremendous virtues, you know, was also despicable, you know, within the context of slavery, uh, insofar as he went along with it. And his relationship to slavery was much more complicated than it is commonly represented. I mean, he was, to some extent, an abolitionist. Uh, his, when he was a young lawyer, he was defending pro bono slaves who were suing, suing for their freedom. Um, when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, he wanted to have passages about condemning slavery that were crossed out as a compromise for the, uh, the Southern representatives. Uh, he passed. He wrote a Virginia Constitution that outlawed slavery. And, and then when he was president, um, at the first moment that it was constitutionally allowable, he passed a law uh, forbidding the importation of slaves uh, on, the, on, the, on the very day that it was constitutionally allowable. Uh, and, uh, and that was the most uh, you know, extensive anti-slavery federal legislation before the Emancipation Proclamation. However, Congress did not fund it, so a quarter of a million uh, people were, you know, brought over from Africa and enslaved. So, so he did all that, and yet at the same time, he had slaves, and he, uh, you know, there were, I mean, one, one of the things that the book is about is the very complicated way that he justified all of that to himself, and, you know, we talked about this the other night, but, uh, he was by far the hardest character for me to inhabit in this book uh, because um, I just couldn't stand to be in the mind of somebody who would excuse slavery like that and who would think that it was right, you know, to, uh, to you know, basically sort of have a sexual relationship with a woman who was enslaved and you know, who had no real choice. And, um, you know, and, and yet, and I had, but I had, in order to make the, the book work, I had to be in his mind, I had to be able to, to think like he did and represent his feelings. And so that was really, I, I felt besmirched when I was doing that, but I had to do that. Um, and, you know, by contrast, I mean, this is sort of like an inversion of the normal way of thinking about it. The white male, and I, as a white male, the white male was the, by far the harder character for me to inhabit. But Sally Hemings, uh, you know, the African-American uh, female, was uh, much easier, and for the simple reason that she did, you know, while she did things, she had to, she had, as a result of her quite extreme privilege at, at Monticello, she was alienated from her own people, the people hated her, you know, she felt guilty about herself, and as the novel progresses, her guilt gets greater and greater and greater for things that I won't, I don't want to divulge. Uh, but nonetheless, fundamentally, she was a, you know, a woman struggling with an intolerable situation, just trying to get by, just doing everything she could to, to lead as decent a life as she could and do the most she could for her children in a situation that gave her only awful alternatives. So she, there was nothing wrong with her. And so it was much easier not only to inhabit her mind, you know, in terms of it was, I didn't feel besmirched by being in Sally Hemings' mind, but also, um, I was on her side, you know, and so that was easier. Uh, but still, you know, one of the challenges, I'm getting in this thing of the, these two truths, these two goods, I wanted them, I wanted to be in them to the degree that they would come into kind of a conflict and the reader would not know, you know, the reader would be so so in Sally Hemings' mind and so in Jefferson's mind that the reader would then have trouble figuring out, wait a second, what should I think? What should I feel? And one of the reasons why I like to do that is when you don't know what to think, then you think your hardest. Mm, you know, true. you know, and and so you learn stuff. And so, in a way, part of this reason for, you know, uh, making truths and and uh, and um, 
impulses come into conflict like this is to, is to provoke my readers to thought. Um, and so, you know, that's very much what the book was built upon. So this may just be a reflection of my superficiality, but I tend to think in terms of gray, shades of gray, and I find it easier to um, believe in a character who has lots of contradictions. <clears throat> and one of the things that I got from you was the passages which talked about the problems of releasing slaves when the environment wasn't right. It would have meant um, pretty much personal ruin for what the operation he was running. It would have meant uh, that the slaves would not have been released into very tenable situations. And he talked, and also I get this from you, because I haven't done any independent research, about he talked about how he would want slaves to be liberated, and it was not to go back into American society. It was to go elsewhere. Um, so to me, that perfectly harmonized why he would not be, uh, you know, just precipitously and um, suddenly um, releasing his slaves and why it would make sense that he would do everything that he could, including the Constitution of Virginia and all of the, and the gentleness with which he treated his own slaves. At least that's what I got yeah. from the web. We certainly didn't see him doing anything horribly cruel. And so it seemed to me that the uh, pieces were in harmony, that there wasn't a huge conflict. Um, that made sense. That's probably how real life is in my mind, that people have to give way on some things and then make concessions on others, but try and go in a direction that they're pulling for. But one, one of the ways in which I mean, I think what all, all you're saying is true to an extent, but in in that those passages you're talking about, those were, in, in, to my mind, perfectly rational arguments that were really a form of self-deception, and they were what he was because Sally Hemings was always questioning him in those things, and he was coming back with all these arguments, and he was a very smart man, so he was able to do that, but basically he was trying to sort of confuse her because fundamentally what she was saying was absolutely right, that this is you know, preposterous, uh, that slavery is immoral, and who are you to say you know, that uh, uh, you know better about how these people uh, you know, should live their lives? And, and, and wouldn't, it be, you know, wouldn't you be more fulfilling your own ambitions if you were to free your slaves? Uh, and so Jefferson, in, to my mind, was constructing these sort of ironclad arguments that were partially true, but fundamentally intended to maintain the status quo. And one of the things that's really interesting about Jefferson, I've never heard anybody talk about this, but I noticed it as I was reading his letters and doing the research, and his, his, all of his others were writing. He, up until uh, 1789, which is the year that he and Sally Hemings most likely began to have a sexual relationship. He was really quite adamant about ending slavery, and so the, the, the Virginia Constitution, all that was written before that. Uh, and then all of a sudden, in, se in 17, maybe 1788 or 1789, I can't remember now, but right about then, he writes this letter to a friend saying, we cannot release our slaves as yet because that would be like, because they are like, because having been uh, brought up in, within the context of slavery, they are like children and will not know how to manage in the world. Well, which slave was like a child? Mm -hmm. Sally Hemings. And after he's, the commencement of his relationship with Sally Hemings, he never, you know, he never really, he never made a move to end slavery. And in fact, you know, he was very, you know, he was concerned. He thought that there would be race war. I mean, he knew that slavery was, you know, immoral. I mean, he, he thought that God would punish America for the institution of slavery. And he also knew that, that slaves were furious and had a righteous fury, and that were slaves free, they would, might vent their, their, their fury, and of course, the white people would vent their own fury, you know. And, and he was very worried about a race war, which is why he 
uh, you know, came was one of the people who sort of signed on to this sort of, you know, repatriation to Africa. Although actually for a while I was thinking it was that the slaves should all go live in Ohio. <laughs> but finally Africa became, you know, so he was concerned about that. And, and of course, you know, to some extent he's right. I mean, you know, one could argue that we have, the whole history of this country is a race war, you know, and, uh, and that it's the, it's the great blot on, on our, our soul as a nation that we've been sort of riven by racism to this day. How, how do you feel, now that the book is written, how do you feel uh, about the, the, the topic that you decided to, to devote so much time and attention to? Do you feel that you did it justice in, in regards to what you were aiming to do? And obviously you've told us how conflicted you are, how difficult it was for you. But tell us about when you, when you put something like that out into the world, yes, you get reviews, yes, you get readers who love it. And, but what about you as the, as the creator of that book? How did it change your perspective and you as a writer? Well, you know, I knew from the beginning that I was probably an idiot for undertaking, <laughs> as a white male undertaking uh, this uh, topic in this era. Um, and as I was writing it, uh, sort of the political climate changed more and more and more and made me seem, you know, not just an idiot, but in, a absolutely insane and suicidal. Uh, however, at that point, I was so fascinated by this issue and, I, and I, I just couldn't stop it. And also, I felt that a lot of what I was doing would give people insight into the nature, what, you know, what, the way racism works, the, how people you know, accede to it, how people uh, can live with it. You know, these were things that I was trying to explore. Um, but, um, uh, you know, and so, and, and in fact, you know, one of the things too that I, uh, I was very aware of that as a white man, I had to uh, work, be, work, be very careful not to um, misrepresent Sally Hemings or misrepresent any of, you know, the. The African American people in the novel, uh, and so that fear—I mean, fundamentally, it's a fear like I can't get this wrong, I must not get this wrong—was in the end hugely inspiring to me. Uh, so that was really great, and I think that actually the best parts of the book came out of that, precisely because I was so determined not to uh, get it wrong. And um, you know, there was one moment when I first wrote the book; it was all in third person, and it was pretty much equally divided between Sally Hemings and, and Thomas Jefferson. And in fact, it was a little bit more Sally Hemings than Thomas Jefferson because I did page count because I was so concerned about it. But I gave that version of it to friends to read. And they, they kept saying to me, well, how come you know, Tom, it's all about Thomas Jefferson, you know, not enough about Sally Hemings? And I said, no, no, she's half the book. But then I said, and then I was wondering, how could this be? And then I realized that, of course, Thomas Jefferson is an icon. He's, he's, he's a magnet for readers' attention, he, and he just sort of sucks up all the air in the room. And you know, so that once again, his mere stature in American history was obscuring Sally Hemings, was you know, just driving her out of the picture. So I thought, what can I do to correct this? And, I, and all of a sudden, like in a flash, it came to me, I could have a section of the book in which she tells her own story. And I, maybe I could make that like a third of the book. And that was just hugely inspiring, and I just started writing that. And you know, and I, I, to my mind, it's, it's, the, it's the best part of the book. And I, uh, I did that because I, wa you know, I was, I was so determined to get this right. Now, did I get it right? <laughs> you know, one of the things that when you're uh, talking about very complicated situations, and especially when you're trying to get sort of truths to bump up against each other. So here's a perfect example. I believe Sally Hemings was raped by Thomas Jefferson because she was enslaved, she had no uh, right to say no. That's one truth. The other truth is that the relationship was much more complicated than that. Uh, that's something that you see in the biographies that have been written about her, including Annette Gordon Reed's The, the Hemings of Monticello. Um, and it's something that you see in the way people refer to her during the time, her prominence at Monticello. And it's something that the Hemings family maintains. The Hemings family maintains, at least the, the people I've met and talked to, 
uh, that it was a love relationship. So I initially was not thinking it was a love relationship, but then I thought, huh, well, suppose if it was, what would that be like? Would it be real love? Would it be the Stockholm Syndrome? Or is it something in between? And if it's something in between, where does real love, which is this sort of thing, it's thing a relationship that gives you strength, transform into the Stockholm Syndrome, which is a love-like relationship with a, someone who means you harm that makes you weak? At what point does that happen? And, and what's the mixture of love and Stockholm Syndrome in any relationship? So therefore, I got, became very interested in this idea. It, initially, it was not my idea for the book, but, um, but I thought, oh, this, this is interesting, but allow me to explore this other really interesting thing, love, you know, something that I myself have always thought, you know, is the, is the best thing about being a human, is being able to be in love and to love your children, have your children's love and be part, you know, of a community and, and all that. But at the same time, it has a real dark side. So, so then I decided to explore that, and so that was one of the reasons why I made my relationship with Sally Hemings and Jefferson it's not purely a brutal rape. That, that first scene that I wrote, the realistic scene, was, was a rape scene. I decided, I'm going to go all the way, I'm going to write a rape scene. And, um, but then I decided, no, I want, to, I want this to be more, more nuanced because it's more interesting because, again, it gets the pe the people thinking about things. So here we have two truths coming together. It's rape, it's more complicated than that. Now, in our current climate, and fundamentally, I think this is a good thing. Uh, I think that the, the alertness to the, the injustices of racism, the alertness that we have to the, uh, the injustices of the patriarchy, and all of that stuff are really important and a, a, you know, a sign of, of the development of our country, even if we're also in the midst of a kind of a, a big sort of counter movement uh, in that regard. Uh, but and so, but you know, as a part of that, uh, a lot of people think, no, no, it's just rape, and anything else is, you know, a lie. You're an, an apologist for slavery. You're an apologist for Jefferson. And I don't believe that that's true. I believe that we have to look at the complexity of experiences. But I guess I also have to admit that who am I to determine what is true? You know, all I can say is that I built this device out of words that I wanted to stimulate people to think. And, and in particular, I wanted people to think about how complex the truth is, how complex people are. Because if you take a really, if a simple vision of humanity and human actions, if you adhere only to the sort of vision that is useful in a political campaign where your sole goal is to get a whole lot of people to do one thing, vote for you, um, you're oversimplifying reality, and therefore you're misunderstanding reality. And when you misunderstand reality, especially about the, the nature of the human character, human relations, you're in danger of creating some kind of atrocity or tyranny. And so I wanted this to sort of unpack all of the ideas that we have about this and get the different ideas in conflict with one another. But some people don't want that. And some people believe, and I think that there is something to this, that we are living in an era where we can't, we can't allow that complexity because we have to sort of drive home. You know, we have to carry on the revolution. Right. And that's a legitimate point of view. I'm not, I, I, you know, it's, it's not mine. I wouldn't have written the book if I didn't believe what I believe. But I think it's a legitimate point of view. So did I get it all down? I, I can't say I'm not the judge. Other people are. All right, well, we're going to... Well, I just wanted to say it's interesting to me that you found it harder to be in the shoes of the white male, and you're a white male. I found it harder to be in the shoes of the woman, and I'm always looking at things from the perspective of the woman. Um, and I got very angry sometimes at the way Sally Hemings was portrayed because... I'm sure that she couldn't have, you know, freely loved him and she was 30 years or 20 or 30, 
years his junior and he had 30. The, 30 years younger uh, all she had known from the beginning was that he was the master and, and that's that's out in the culture and he had the right to kill her if he felt like it you know so to me I was ready to say this is I I didn't I, I, I got up in arms a lot when mm -hmm, I was reading mm -hmm. it I didn't accept that he would pour her coffee and bring it to her or pour a beverage and bring it to her or speak to her in some of the ways that they portray it so um, you're succeeding because you created all of that turmoil mm -hmm. I, but it's funny that I was willing to forgive Jefferson and say life is so complex you know he was trying to balance all of these different mm -hmm. tensions when he clearly was opposed to slavery and not necessarily that he was just corrupt and brought down it's much more nuanced than that mm -hmm. but when it came to Sally my experience as a reader was sort of like that is not you uh, that is not fair I remember seeing um, I was looking at reviews of the book, and I think mm -hmm. it was WAPO, the Washington Post, mm -hmm. said something about it's a book about an illicit affair, and I was like, that's not an affair! <laughs> so it, yeah, I was a little bothered by that, too, actually. Yeah, I think Although it I'm really... Although I'm happy with the rest of the review, but yeah. Yeah, it called it brilliant. I mean, it was an amazing review, and I think it is brilliant. I think it stirs up everything, and I think you were very brave to mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think, again, you know, what you're saying uh, makes a lot of sense. I mean... Uh, and, I, and it's a perfectly legitimate point of view. I mean, there, there were relationships, you know, that were very tender between, and there were, you know, between masters and their enslaved, you know, their enslaved women. So, we in the and historical record, yeah, there are, found evidence there for are, that. There are, there are. Yeah, I mean, I refer to one of them, which is one of Sally Hemings' sisters, uh, married uh, a man that she was initially sort of, so when, when, when Jefferson was in France, uh, some of the slaves, those Hemings family, again, were always very privileged, were allowed to sort of work for other people and get paid and, and keep their money. She worked for, I can't remember the name of the guy now, uh, but they ended up having a sexual relationship. They ended up having children. When Jefferson came back, she came, uh, you know, she came to him, you know, it had to go back to Monticello, but she said, could you please sell me to this man? And, and Jefferson did for a little bit. I mean, it was like, it was nothing. And uh, and so then she went, and that was one example. But there were, you know, there were right. there were there were. Let's there were let's move on. But I mean, you didn't the... just take on racism; you also took on sexism. Yeah, and so so there it is. There were there were those things. But I think that what you're saying is true, and other you know, obviously, you're not the only person who said that. And you know, I, that's certainly something that makes me think. Uh, I tried as well as I could, and I gave it to a lot of people to read, and you know. And, well, I think the author's job is, is to do exactly yeah. what you did, which is to make people think. And mm -hmm. I think if you've succeeded in doing that, and you've caused a little turmoil, then that is fantastic. <laughs> All the power to you. Um, so we need to move on to the next segment. We're going to do um, some reading, if you don't mind sharing the two excerpts that you'd like to read today. Sure. And just give us where in the book you're reading from, and, and the title once more for our Okay, listeners. well, the, the book is Thomas Jefferson Dreams of Sally Hemings. And I thought that I would just read two really short bits right from the beginning. They're basically the first time you really get a glimpse of both Jefferson and Hemings. Uh, and also they're in two styles, so one of them is very realistic, the other one is surrealistic. Actually, the first one is the surrealistic one. So, it's the first paragraph of the book. In some ways, Thomas Jefferson finds death more appealing than life. Nothing he does matters anymore, and so he is able to lose himself more completely in the moment. Now he is lost in the emerald translucency of locust leaves and dawn light. Now in a cloud of indigo butterflies fluttering over meadow grass. And now his heart is broken by the contest between joy and despair in every note of birdsong. Birds have three springs inside their heads and seven cogs and are not actually capable of choice. And yet all day, every day, they sing of joy's inability to outlast despair. There is something in this that Thomas Jefferson finds unspeakably beautiful. And here is Sally Hemings uh, speaking in her own voice. I cannot bear to be myself. I feel trapped inside my own body and inside the life I have led. 
This day I have seen such sorrow, cruelty, and injustice that my mind reels at the recollection of it, and my stomach is so sick with loathing that I can hold nothing down. Indeed, I have already vomited three times, twice on that acre of frozen earth where I witnessed the craven depravity of people I have lived with and even loved all of my life, and once, just now, as I held my face over the top of the previous long, filth-gnarled tunnel. Nothing, I believe, seems true anymore. As late as this very morning, when I knew precisely what was going to happen, I could not grasp the enormity of it. I allowed myself to believe that I would still be possessed of dignity, dignity and decency afterwards, and that there were limits to the horror my life, or any life, could contain. How could I have lived in such ignorance? How could I have believed so many lies and lied so often to myself? Why is it that every time I glimpsed the faintest, faintest shadow of the truth, I covered my eyes and ran as far as I could in the opposite direction? I feel as if I have never actually lived my life, but only sleepwalked through it, dreaming. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. The way that we'll conclude is we do have listeners that are both readers and writers. So we would like you, if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit about how were you able to tackle the task of writing a female voice so convincingly? Because that, I think, is something that's not easy to do. Uh, and you did explain that that was easier for you. It was easier in terms of my ability to inhabit her. Uh, you know, again, as, as, as Diane has pointed out, perhaps I didn't inhabit her all the way. Although, I guess, even in that part that I just read, you know, one of the things that I see is that she is trying to find, she has no choice, and she's trying to find the way to believe that her life is decent. And the other thing, of course, is that she was Jefferson's wife's half-sister. And Jefferson loved his wife so deeply that he, he, he was, you know, his friends thought when she died that he was on the verge of insanity, and that's why they sent him to France. So Sally Hemings, who, the only description we have of her is that she was, had long, uh, you know, straight hair, looked mighty near white with long straight hair hanging down her back. When she arrives in France, she must have res resembled his wife, who had been dead at that point for five years. So... You know, his emotional relationship to her would be different. And part of the complexity of her character is that she's, she's black, she's, but she looks white. She's a slave, but she's family. She is, uh, you know, at the bottom of society, and yet she is privileged among the people. So there are all these contradictions in her character. Um, in any event, and just to get back to your question, but I think that and that's sort of the way I was imagining, so that his behavior with her was different than it would have been, than any ordinary slaveholder would have, or if he'd had a sexual relationship with any other enslaved woman, he, he would have behaved differently. But because she was almost like the reincarnation of his beloved wife, their relationship was different. At least that was the notion that I, I, I predicated the novel on. That was one of the reasons why, how I, I wanted, that was one of the ways I was able to make this relationship so complicated that you would, you know, the people would, wouldn't know what to believe. Uh, but, that, but that was my rationale in any event. So, you know, and the way to do that was to think about all those things and to try as much as I could to say, okay, let's think about Sally Hemings I mean, and, and all those contradictions in her own character. It must have been so hard to be her. How did she navigate all of that? And then when you think, too, that she's She's just an ordinary person, and no one can bear to go through their entire life thinking, my life is a catastrophe, everything is awful, I'm evil, I shouldn't even live, you know? Some people do feel like that, and they, you know, they tend not to last very long, but most people try to find a way to believe that their life is a decent life worth living. So give us something so, practical. Did you write essays about uh, trying to understand what she went through? Did you, how did you, because before you get your, your text in the final yeah. draft, you have to find a way into that character. So what were your methods for doing that? Well, of course, you know, the first, as I did a lot of research, and uh, I read a number of, you know, slave narratives, and the best one being, oh God, I'm like the name of it now, 
by Harriet Jacobs, uh, Incidents in the Life, Life of a Slave Girl. Fantastic, really, really interesting book. Uh, but also, of course, I read uh, Annette Gordon-Reed's uh, books about uh, the Hemings and about Jefferson. Uh, I've read many other, many biographies, so that was the first thing. But then, of course, as a, as a fiction writer, what you have to do is try to say, okay, that's, these are all these facts, but what's it like to live in the middle of that? And so I was, all the time I was thinking about that. How would it be, okay, you know, she's this, she's that. How would she have lived with that? Um, and, you know, the, 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 the narrative in her voice was really the last thing I wrote, and I wrote it extremely quickly. And I wrote it just in a few days, and maybe, it's not a third of the book, maybe it's a quarter of the book, and it's a 600-page book, so that's a lot of writing, but I just was so taken with it. But before that, I had been writing and writing and writing. And, you know, one of the things is that the process of writing is, you know, you, you gain your authority by writing, by thinking through each moment of a person's life. And the more you do that, the more you come to understand who the, the person is. And so just the writing of the book did that. And then so I would, you know, sometimes I think, oh no, you know, this is wrong. I've got this wrong. I've got to get it right and I'd cross it all out and I would write some more stuff. So you write on paper? No. I, oh, I was going to say, crossing out. Oh my God. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, I do sometimes write on paper, but mostly I, I yeah. was on the computer. How long did it take you to write this book? Well, that's a little bit complicated. Um, I, st I wrote it as a short story, and I wrote the short story. The 300-word so piece is really the seed for the story, yeah, is that right. correct? Yeah, yeah. And, but then I wrote another short story that was accepted by a magazine, but then the magazine went out of business. Uh, uh, but in any event, it took me about nine months to work, write that story, because I had to do the research. It was unlike any other story I'd done. I had to, and then, and then the, the magazine held on to it for a year and a half, and I just didn't do anything with it. And then after this, when the magazine folded, I, I said, what am I going to do with this story now? And then suddenly, just in a flash, it just, it's a novel. And I thought, oh my God, it is. And so that was, oh, probably in, uh, sometime in 2012. And then I, I finished the book in 2015. I I'd, I'd sold it in 2014. I finished revisions. I did extensive revisions even after I, I, I sold it. And uh, so uh, that's how long it took. Got it. And again, you know, all the revisions too are part of making. All they're all aimed to make the character yeah. right. Anything you'd like to ask? Diane? Anything that we want to cover right before we? Uh, just thank you. I think it was a major contribution to the conversation. Oh well, thank you. Thank you. So let's let people, our listeners, know where to find your books. If this was published by Viking, yeah. it's available on Amazon. You have yeah. your website, mm -hmm. StephenO'Connor.com. Dot net. Dot net. Dot net. Stephen okay. O'Connor with no apostrophe. Yes, okay. The internet's not fond of apostrophes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show today, and we will catch you next time. Thank you. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.